Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Dearest Cecilia, the story can resume. The one I had been planning on that evening walk. I can become again the man who once crossed the Surrey Park at dusk in my best suit, swaggering on the promise of life. The man who, with the clarity of passion, made love to you in the library. The story can resume. I will find you, love you, marry you, and live without shame. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Atonement. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from my basement, as always, my name is Don. And to my right, we have the comic book guy, John. Evening, Governor. And to my left, as always, we have the professor, Ken. Hello there. (laughs) Nice accents, boys. Good job. Uh, how you guys doing? Feeling brilliant. Are you feeling brilliant, sir? Excellent, sir. Right. So we've decided that we're going to do the entire ca- uh, podcast like this, and you can comment and tell us if it's rubbish or if it's bloody brilliant. Bugger off. We're all just three wankers. Hey, you can wank all you want, buddy, but keep me out of your wanking. Uh, atonement. Uh, this was my period piece. We pulled it out of the helmet, and I'm sure you both have questions. <laughs> the first one being, why atonement? Why did you pick it, Don? Well, there are a couple of different reasons. Uh, I was When we got period piece, a lot of things went through my head. Uh, what is a period piece? Uh, what, <clears throat> you know, what movies have I seen that I like that I think you guys would like? Whatever. Um, you know, Braveheart definitely that's went through my head. That's what I was thinking. Why didn't you pick? I thought you would have picked that. Because that's why I didn't. Because I knew you would think that I would pick Braveheart. And Braveheart, Braveheart it has a special place in my heart, right? I think that is the first film when I watched it. It actually made me want to be a director. It made me want to go make movies. So um, I had to watch it on the two VHS set. Uh, I was pissed I never saw it in the theaters. But... Yeah, Braveheart. And then also, I was kind of, I didn't really want to go with the whole Pride and Prejudice Jane Austen route, though some of them are good movies, don't get me wrong. I just kind of wanted to stay uh, away from that. Uh, Atonement came on a recommendation, and then also when I was looking at the, the genre picks on Xfinity, it's the first one I came to, two and two together, we have Atonement. Didn't Pride and Prejudice also star Kira Knightley, directed by Joe Wright? Uh, you tell me, Professor. I think I think that that's true. Yeah, and see, when you start talking about these period pieces and these same actresses and actors who, uh, like Hugh Grant, who keeps going, uh, he's in a period piece or 12, and um, they all kind of, in my head, they all kind of uh, mix. What I liked about Atonement, which was completely unexpected, is... In my opinion, it didn't follow the typical formula of what I thought that movie was going to be. 
So I, that's I, for sure. I, 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 I kind of, I enjoyed it. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I enjoyed it. Tournament. Well, the, the thing that confused me is I thought, you know, this is movie was 1935 was the date. Yeah. Where was all the singing and the music? Yeah. And going through while I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, fuck, I'm so glad they're not singing an Elton John song right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then in my head at the same time, I was watching it, laughing, thinking of you, thinking where's the musical. And then the first thing that popped into my head was, oh, fuck that guy. What'd you think? Do you like it? The, uh, the movie was uh, a slow watch for me at first. As I got away from the movie and sat and, and uh, reflected on it, especially you know with the epilogue, it, uh, it, it made me look at it in a, in a different way. And I've come to appreciate it more after having seen it and reflected on it and, and the complexity of its story in how it is revealed to us by the end of the movie. And so I, I came to have a greater appreciation after watching it as opposed to while I was watching it. Right on. That's cool. Do you like it? Okay, so John John didn't like it. And you know what? I didn't I didn't think you would from the moment I picked it. Uh, but then as I was watching it and things were unfolding the way they were and I was caught off guard by it, I'm thinking, John may it may be okay with John, but then looking at your face right now, you, you kinda, well, you're telling me to fuck off. So well, here we put, go. Let me put it to you this way. Oh, here we go. This movie is very well made. The acting is phenomenal in it. I thought the dialogue and all that is great. I thought the costumes, the sets, the way they did Dunkirk, all of it is fantastic. Not my pick of movies. This is not a movie that I would go out or people who are like me, uh, would enjoy watching, but people who like down, you know, Downton Abbey or Pride and Prejudice, this would be a fantastic movie, and I would highly recommend it to them. So, what you're saying is, it's an acquired taste. It is definitely an acquired taste type of movie. Interesting. Now, if they had inserted in like, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, or like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, they put in some dead things in there. I think I would have liked it more. And might I add, all valid choices for period piece. You should think about that next time you pick fucking Moulin Rouge. How did this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $23 million and made $131 million. So I was impressed with that. Yeah, that's very well. And I was also impressed with the fact that it only cost $23 million with all the extras they had, especially for the Dunkirk scene, that it came in at that $23 million mark. This movie was released on September 7th, 2007 in the United Kingdom, December 7th, 2007 in the United States, January 9th, 2008 in France. It was directed by Joe Wright and was written by Christopher Hampton and based on the book Atonement by Ian McEwen. It stars Professor X, Elizabeth Swan, Doctor Strange. Oh wait, wrong movie. Uh, it stars James McAvoy, Kira Knightley, Sursa Ronan, Romola Jari, and Vanessa Redgrave. I thought the casting was excellent in this movie. Yeah, the casting was really good. I didn't realize it was a young Sursa Ronan. Uh, she's a pretty good actress, and yeah, she's been coming was, up was lately. She, was she 12? 12 or 13 when she did this? The movie was... She was 12 when the movie was made. She was 13 when she was nominated for the award. Very impressive. What was she nominated for? A supporting actress in the Academy, Academy Awards. Awards. Oh, okay, thank you. 
Oh. It only it, it won one Academy Award, and that was for uh, musical score. Was it musical score? There was no big na- dance number. I kept waiting for it. Best achievement for music. It was nominated for picture, supporting actress, adapted screenplay, cinematography, achievement in art, achievement in costume. Thirteen-year-old fledgling writer Bryony Tallis changes the course of several lives when she accuses her older sister's lover of a crime he did not commit. So the crime, when it happened, it happened, I don't know, it happened far enough into the film that the film, the remainder of the film could have been about the investigation. It could have been about uh, the whereabouts. It could have been oh, about the actual crime, the trial, and the all trial, of all of it, right? It could have been about that, but when it took its turn and he cops out of jail and goes to the army, the, the film turns right. And, and totally. I appreciated that because though I was enjoying what I was watching so far, I thought Kira Knightley who, I think is a fine actress and James McAvoy, I'm a big fan of, uh, they were carrying this story and little, so, uh, social, uh, Ronan, uh, I really like that character too. And so when it made its turn, I really appreciated that though. I was expecting it to be that crime thriller and I was happy that it wasn't. What did you think about the style of this movie that we'd see one thing through her viewpoint and then they would jump back without even telling you that they were jumping back. They would jump back and then show it from a different person's viewpoint. Yeah, see, that fucked me up. And what started it was uh, the uh, scene at the fountain. Well, she's looking out the window, the first one. So for me, Cecilia, she gets out of the fountain and she's drenched. And then she puts her clothes on and she walks into the house. And then we see her in the house with the vase of flowers. And her clothes are all dry. Why are her clothes all dry? Right, and She that's shouldn't it. have dry clothes. And then... We're back out at the fountain and, and oh yeah, and that and that's what fucked me up. Yeah, I was so. just, I'm, I'm asking just uh, what you guys think of that style of jump back, jump forth, jump back, jump forth. Oh, uh, as long as the story is told right and it mm. explains itself at some point, I'm fine with it. A la Pulp Fiction. It is imperative because that is what this entire story hinges around. Not once, but twice. Bryony misinterprets misunderstands what it is that she's seeing the first time she is completely mistaken about what's happening out in the fountain the second time she is completely mistaken about what she's witnessing in the library it happened actually three times where she misunderstands what's the third time the third time is the letter she doesn't realize that he didn't mean to send that letter she thinks he's a sex maniac because of the letter that he she reads okay but that dovetails into what she sees in the library Mm -hmm. she doesn't understand the complexity of the relationship that is going on between cecilia and robbie and because of that that is why we have to have those scenes in there and the and the irreparable damage that her misunderstandings causes that carries throughout the entire movie right And, and and real quick ultimately she is the narrator Right, so we have we have to see it through her eyes. We yes. have to see her making these uh, misunderstandings, these assumptions. But the, but, but the only way this works for us as the audience is if we know what's going on, if we're in on the gag, right? So we have to see it from both perspectives. Yes. So in that perspective, or in that aspect, the filmmakers have to figure out a way to do it that kind of keeps us engaged. And this back and forth style is one way to do it. And I thought they used it very effectively. Here's where I'm going to completely disagree with both of you. 
I don't think we needed to see it the second time. When she looks to the window and she sees on the pond and she sees what's going on, did you have any question in your mind that what she was thinking wasn't really what happened? Yeah. So I, I knew he didn't force her into the pond. He didn't force her to take off her clothes. She was misunderstanding what she was seeing. I had no question that. I did not need to see right then and there the whole thing retold. And now he's trying, you know, she drops the vase in there. They could have saved up all those jump back scenes for later on. Maybe, you know, the sister tells the story of, oh, here's what you really, you didn't know this happened. This is what really happened. And we could have all gotten that together in one big lump of, oh, here's what you thought you saw, but here's what really happened. As a filmmaker, you do not want to start introducing that concept too far into the film because then you really fuck people up. So uh, uh, a device to do that is to do it. What is it? uh, Three misunderstandings. Virtu- uh, basically is what we're talking uh-huh. about. So rules of three. My, my point is you want to put it into the film to establish that this is where we're going. This is how the audience mm-hmm. has to follow the story. And if they can keep up and that's great. And if they think it's too long, like in your case, well, so be it. I also All didn't right? need the extra bit about, um, you know, she sees them having sex in the library. I didn't need to know that he wasn't not, you know, he wasn't attacking her. Well, which, uh, again, I disagree because I thought she was fucking dead. When she walks in, neither of those bodies are moving. And it's very plausible that he's slamming her against that fucking bookshelf and she breaks her neck. Have you ever seen very bad things? Shit gets real yeah. in the heat of the moment. All I'm saying is I thought she was dead. But if they so, had continued on, like, you know, the second when they went back, and they continued it on to show them all when she screamed out. That's when they moved and went away. If they had just continued it on when she first walked in, I would have gotten the same effect. Oh, these two are just in love with each yeah, other. Yeah, but they didn't, right? Huh? So, I mean, for me, I thought they were dead. So I'm glad that they they explained it. I thought it looked like that he was forcing himself on her. Oh, really? From her point of view, I totally bought Bryony's point of view that he was forcing himself on her as opposed to it being consensual. See, the way McAvoy comes across on screen and the way his character has been presented to us so far, he's got the good guy heart, mm-hmm. right? And I never once thought he was trying to take advantage of her. And and also the way they would look at each other at the fountain, right? There was... there was, And that's why I totally believed what Bryony was seeing from her perspective. I totally bought what she was misinterpreting. In 1935 England, 13-year-old Brownie Tallis, the youngest daughter of the wealthy Tallis family, is set to perform a play she has written for an upcoming family gathering. Looking out of her bedroom window, she spies on her older sister Cecilia and the housekeeper's son Robbie Turner, on whom Brownie has a crush. During their argument near the fountain, Robbie accidentally breaks a vase and yells at Cecilia to stay where she is so as to avoid cutting her feet on the broken pieces on the ground. Still angered, Cecilia then strips off her outer clothing, stares at him, and climbs into the basin to retrieve one of the pieces. Bryony misinterprets the scene as Robbie ordering his sister to undress and get in the water. Robbie drafts a note to Cecilia to apologize for the incident. In one draft, designed only as a private joke, he confesses his sexual attraction to her in explicit terms. He then writes a more formal letter and gives it to Bryony to deliver. Only after does he realize that he has given her the wrong letter. 
Bryony reads the letter before giving it to Cecilia. Later, she describes it to her 15-year-old cousin visiting Lola, who calls Robbie a sex maniac. Paul Marshall, a visiting friend from Bryony's older brother, introduces himself to the visiting cousins and appears to be attracted to Lola. Before dinner, Robbie apologizes to Cecilia for the obscene letter, but to his surprise, she confesses her secret love for him. They proceed to make passionate love in the library. Bryony walks in on them and thinks that Robbie is raping Cecilia. So I was impressed with the the cinematography of how this uh, first act plays out because it is very bright. Yes. And you have uh, uh, a sense of glamour and luxury during the whole time that we are on the Talis estate. Uh, Cecilia is somebody of status and culture. And I think that Robbie looks at himself as being outclassed and not a part of their world. And for him to have any type of feelings for her is going to be in vain. She should have no reason to look down on him and think that she would reciprocate any type of feelings that he might have for her. Sure. And so I, I just appreciated the, uh, the, the light airiness and, and the bright and the soft uh, texture of, uh, of the, the feeling that is given in the clothes that they wear, the way that it's filmed. And I, I just thought that that is a really stark contrast compared to what happens in the second act. And see, and that's where I thought the entire film was going to be. So did in I. That, in that area of the airiness and bright, very Downton Abbey, right? That's what I thought too. <clears throat> and so... Yeah, and so they did a really good job, and I agree with you. The cinematography is great, uh, just the way they use their shots. Um, yeah. And I, I really thought, like I said earlier, it was really well acted, and the cast was well picked. Uh, James did a great job playing Robbie. You really believed he was this kind of somewhat naive boy who was getting ready to go off to go to, to medical school to become a doctor, mm-hmm. that he had his whole life in front of him, that he you know, harbored a crush on this woman and that secretly she kind of had a crush on him because she was kind of flirting, but she wasn't sure. When Paul Marshall came into the picture, you got the creepy-ass vibe from him when he was talking to the cousins. Oh, yeah. You knew right away that this guy was a creep. Yeah. And just the way he even looked at Lola and was talking with Lola, um, you knew something was coming. I mean, he just, he spelled it all out right away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, they, he made no... Uh, he made no uh, uh, attempt to appear to be not the bad guy, mm-hmm. right? And ben- Benedict Cumberbatch in this role, I thought he was fantastic, mm-hmm. right? It's very short, it's very sweet, but I bought that he was the asshole, mm-hmm. you know, the moment you meet him. Uh, and and I also appreciated getting to know who uh, Bryony is, right? We open with her and she's writing this play and she's sitting down at a typewriter and we, and this is the first time we get the typing noise, right? And that's going to be a reoccurring theme throughout this film, um, which I dug by the way, I thought it was going to get annoying, but then I kind of figured it out. Um, Did you notice how it continued to linger as the typing stops, but the clacking of the typewriter then melds into the, the score of the music? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and so we, we keep getting uh, uh, undercurrents of that with the music, with with the clacking of that typewriter sound. Right, and uh, I, I put it together at the end, obviously, but every time it would 
go into the score or we would hear it throughout the movie and we didn't see her typing. It was her typing this story because we, we know how it ends and that this is, is this is the book. Right. And so I thought that was a clever way of uh, putting that in there. And if, and when I ever watch this again, you know, that'll be on my mind. How quick did you click with Bryony that she had a crush on Robbie instantly? That's what I think too. Because the, all these movies are kind of set up the same. Yeah. Right. Was that the same for you, professor? Did you click right away on that? Uh, as soon as uh, she jumps into the water, that sealed the deal for me. Well, that was later on. In yes, the movie. it was yeah. later on. I'm but, talking about early on in the movie. Like even when these things were started to happen, my first thought when she was looking at the window and seeing them at the fountain and when she, especially when she walked in on them, that part of her reaction was based off of the jealousy of her sister that she was pissed off that, that Robbie wasn't, wasn't hers. Yeah, that, that he did not choose her. And that's one of the other reasons why, you know, she felt the way she did and she felt so betrayed and she was willing to go against Robbie. Yeah. yeah. All of this for a 13-year-old crush. Mm-hmm. So. I also thought it was interesting that the movie starts with um, Bryony at the typewriter and then the movie ends with her with her last book. So throughout the arc of the movie, this is Bryony's story, more or less, because she's a writer, and, and that is what is conveyed throughout the movie. Yeah, and so we, we get the sense that Robbie has been uh, accepted by this family, and you know even the brother Leon, I said that was a great name, Leon, mm-hmm. uh, invites him to dinner, so naturally he comes. And this, It was also revealed, I think, at the fountain that the dad is paying for Robbie to go to right. doctor school. That's right, and he says, you know, I'm going to pay him back. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of, you know, sorry for being a bitch. Well, she was pissed that he was leaving. That's why she wasn't telling him, but right. she was mad that he was actually going off to medical school. Look at you paying attention to the fucking movie. Uh, I do my homework. I'm, f- I'm fucking impressed. Uh, so, you know, I love love. So, you know, I, know oh, me. I, I, I don't think you do. And that's why I'm glad you sat down and watched this. I'm glad you uh, broaden your horizons. I, I, Good you know, job. I'll give the movie a shot. So we have the, uh, the, the, the light airiness, the, the daylight, but the movie turns at dinner when we have, uh, where are the twins? And then I was noticing that we have, it's only darkness from there to finish up the first act. Yeah. And uh complete digression. What an awesome green dress that Cecilia is wearing. Oh yeah. That that is a a gorgeous dress on her. Did you yeah. read about did you do your homework on that dress? No. Of uh, uh, I can't remember which group got together, but there's a group out there that rates all the dresses in all the movies. Uh-huh. That is in I believe the top 5 dresses of all time of movies oh really it's in the same list with scarlett o'hara's dress in gone with the wind probably breakfast at tiffany's yeah but they did specially make that dress from what i was reading that the seam on the side normally it would be sewed all the way down they didn't sew it all the way down so she could lift her leg up for the lot the library scene yeah, she 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 was stunning in that dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were some interesting shot choices. I thought when he's getting ready, the shots of him in the mirror and just they kind of focused on, I wouldn't say odd things, but they kind of lingered on what hands were doing and you know what the table looked like. And I, I was thinking about it, and and I to be honest, I feel like this movie is maybe. 
20, 25 minutes too long. Um, but, you know, interesting choices, I thought. At dinner, Lola's twin brothers go missing, and a search is organized. Outside in the dark, Bryony sees Lola apparently being raped by a man who flees upon being discovered. The two girls talk, and Bryony becomes convinced that it was Robbie again. A confused Lola does not dissent. Robbie finds the twins and returns with them. On the basis of Lola and Bryony's testimony and the explicit letter Robbie wrote to Cecilia, he is arrested for rape. Uh, did it look like Lola was being assaulted? I, I thought so. Yeah, so did I. I, I agree. In fact, uh, do you know how that scene was filmed? No. Uh, they told, uh, what's it? I can never remember. Benedict. That. They told Benedict. Dr. Strange. To pull his pants down, but leave his underwear up. Mm-hmm. So that butt that you were seeing mm-hmm. was digitally added. Oh, sure. That was not his butt. That was not mm-hmm. Dr. Strange's butt. Yeah, but it was funny. This might sound weird, but when I saw it, I'm like, that's not Robbie. That's totally Dr. Strange. <laughs> And plus, he was giving girl creepy eyes. He was giving her creepy eyes, and I didn't buy earlier when Lola said she, her brothers had given her the Indian burns on her arm. Yeah, you know, you I, knew that that was someone holding her. I, I never put two and two together. I clicked right away of that. That's a little odd with the, the you know the googly eyes she was getting earlier, the the weird creepy stranger danger eyes. Gives her the chocolate. Yeah, yeah. He probably creepy. had puppies in the car, so. Yeah, so he takes off, and then uh, Bryony goes back and, you know, basically tells the police that Robbie raped Lola, and Lola... She, sh- she complies. She, she yeah. yeah. So I guess we'll never know. But then I was thinking to myself, well, what the fuck is Robbie during all of this? That's right? what I was thinking. And then so... And I, nobody's asking about the twins. Yeah. And I thought, oh, you know what? He's going to fucking find the, the twins, and we're going to go on with this movie and it's everything's going to be bright and airy again. And, but no, he, he, not only does he find the fucking twins, but when he gets back, he gets fucking arrested. Yeah. How, how could he have done it and found the man? I don't, I don't know. Here's the weird thought that I had. Cause I, you know, I always have these weird thoughts. It seemed like all the men went out looking and the women stayed back. Why did Lola go out with Dr. Strange? Why was she out there looking, whether it was by herself or with anybody? Wouldn't she have been one of the first people since she's a younger girl? Wouldn't they have kept her back at the house? I'm thinking they're her brothers. Yeah, but still, would you let your kid go out looking even if you know, the brothers, you ended up losing her too? Uh, I don't remember it being just the men. Well, it, if you think about it. Bryony Kira, was out there. Kira Who? Knightley was Bryony? moving back at the house. Yeah. Bryony, she was out there. Yeah, they were all out there for a little bit. Okay. Uh, Kira Knightley went out there, but then I think she she does go back to the house. But I yeah. think she was out there for a little bit. Yeah, and you think so. Kira Knightley would have gone with Robbie? They Poor, didn't. They didn't want to make it too obvious. They didn't want to be too distracted. Poor Robbie. He shows up at the house, and you know he's got the twins. He's got one on his shoulders. It, why is everybody so quiet? <laughs> Nobody seems happy right now. Here's the question I had: When Robbie gets arrested, and the mom stops the car and yelling "liar." Why is she yelling liar? Is she yelling liar at Robbie or is she yelling him at the police or is she yelling him at yelling liar at Brownie's testimony? She's yelling liar to the family, to the cops, to everyone who's in on it. Okay. Cause I couldn't tell cause she was looking at the police car and looking towards where Robbie was in the police car, but slamming on the car, yelling liar. And earlier when, 
brought, you know, Robbie was leaving the house, she kind of gave him a weird look. Yeah, well. Like, like she didn't trust him or didn't trust men. Or, I think she doesn't trust a family, mm. maybe. I could read it like that. Maybe. Again, very Downton Abney, so... At this point, I was like, who cares? But when she comes out banging on the car, I knew who she was yelling at. So, And like you were stating earlier, I'm, I'm glad that the next thing that we get is jumping over everything that took place between four years later and the night of the rape. Right. Yeah, it was, it was, a, nice, it was a nice switch up. And I've never read the book. I'm curious to know if the... Uh, book is does it go uh, into any detail at all right and is it um is it written the way it was cut if that makes any sense mm-hmm. so if you're listening and the, you read the book let us know the author actually responded to that question and he said no he said there's a lot more in the book than there was in the movie he says if they had made the movie exactly like when this is coming from the author he said if they had made the movie exactly like the book it would have been boring and nobody would have gone to see it Four years later, during the Second World War, Robbie has been released from prison on the condition that he joins the army and fights in the Battle of France. Separated from his unit, he makes his way on foot to Dunkirk. He thinks back to six months earlier when he met Cecilia, now a nurse. Bryony, now 18, has chosen to join Cecilia's old nursing unit at St. Thomas's Hospital in London rather than go to the University of Cambridge. She writes to her sister, but Cecilia has not forgiven her for her part in the investigation and conviction years before. Robbie, who is falling gravely ill from an infected wound, finally arrives at the beaches of Dunkirk, where he awaits to be evacuated. Later, Bryony, who now regrets implicating Robbie, learns from a newsreel that Paul Marshall, who now owns a factory supplying rations to the British Army, is about to marry Lola. Bryony goes to the ceremony and she realizes that it was Paul who assaulted Lola. Bryony goes to visit Cecilia to apologize directly and suggests correcting her testimony to which Cecilia says she would be an unreliable witness. Bryony is surprised to find Robbie there living with her sister while in London on leave. Bryony apologizes for her deceit, but Robbie is enraged that she still has not accepted responsibility for her actions. Cecilia calms him down and then Robbie instructs Bryony how to correct the record and get Robbie's conviction overturned. Bryony agrees. Cecilia adds that Bryony include what she remembers of Danny Hardman, but Bryony points out that Paul Marshall was the rapist and Cecilia adds that he just married Lola and now Lola will not be able to testify against her husband. So here we are four years later in France and then all of a sudden we jump back six months. Wait a minute. Okay, so jump forward four years, and now we jump back six months. And I was thinking, uh, what is that, three and a half years? Three and a half years. uh, After he gets arrested, right? Yes. Yeah, so he's been in prison for three and a half years for something that he didn't do. All of this went down on a 13-year-old's testimony. Two 13-year-olds. Lola also testified. Okay, so... Lola was 15, I think. Okay. But still, young kids... Young kids and the letter that was meant as a joke that was very graphic and the parents probably, you know, didn't approve. Yeah, which goes to show you status, right? It's because the Taluses were who they were is why that all went down that way. Sure. This is why you need to be careful what you send in emails. uh, Thank you for that PSA. Mm -hmm. Good job. The more you know. So when we uh, see them, when we see uh, Cecilia and Robbie together, 
what did you think of that scene? Uh, are you talking about when they met at the ca- cafeteria before he ships out? Yeah. When he walks in and then walks out, I, I didn't think that they had arranged that meeting. I think that, that he, was my thought too. he, he kind of walked in and saw her and then she saw him. And for that instant, he got scared and then ran out, which he does. But it turns out it was it was an arranged meeting. Um, I, th- I thought it was good. You know, she reaches out, she touches his hand and he was like, no, I, I'm leaving. I'm going. Yeah. My first you know. impression was she wasn't expecting to see him. She was a little bit shocked. And I, my first thought was, did she believe Brianni's testimony that, you know, Robbie really did this at first. And then I realized, oh, they've been corresponding and she didn't believe any of it. And, and she even says she's been estranged from her family ever since. Yeah. I don't think she believed that for one stinking second. Yeah. But kind of kind of gave me the impression at first. Yeah, well, you also don't like love. Yeah, I, I was thinking as well. This is an important scene to have in the movie because this is us being told that Cecilia has kind of sort of turned her back on her family, and she's siding with Robbie. Yes, and she still wants to try to make a relationship with him. And Robbie, very scared that how can they make a future together based on one night of passion? Right. Right, but sometimes you just know that, and a lot of people, especially in that circumstance, don't want to put her through being with a man who's been labeled a rapist. Because even when he gets out of the army, that's something that's going to haunt him. Right, and that's why it's so important that they do get this testimony and do get this thing over. So that later on, but before they even know that she's willing to testify, he's basically pushing her away. Right. Yeah. So there is some symbolism that also works in, in this movie that happens because of the color of blue. So in, in the uh, uh, the blue tones that are used in the movie, uh, the the color palette uh, with blue hues for uh, for Cecilia to be in the uh, blue nurse uh, outfit. This I, I think is to represent that that she is. Uh, she's being loyal or, or, or trustworthy towards him, towards Robbie. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the moments of water that we get throughout the movie, there, there's, um, we have the fountain, we have uh, the two scenes of, of swimming in the water, and, you know, a, a sense, I, I think, that you have of uh, some sort of uh, purifying or, or purity, if you will, and then also we have uh, the movie closing with the beach at the end. That that is the, the illusioned happiness that they finally achieve at the beach. Right. And, and so I, I think that this is intentional in the movie to to show us this that there is a, a, a sense, a, an undercurrent of loyalty and truthfulness that these two hold towards each other. I agree 100%. Well, do you think there was any symbolism, or maybe I'm just not getting it, of when Briani's in the hospital and she's dealing with the patient that has his head cracked open, um, and he's obviously delusional and he's talking about love, and it's almost like I almost felt like he was acting like what Robbie would be with Cecilia, and she was getting the vantage point of oh my God, this is what I did. I cut these two lovers off. And it was really hitting her because this man was talking about all he wanted was to be with his love and do you love me? Did you get in, was, do you think there was some symbolism there or do you think that was just put in to show kind of a wartime effort? No, I, I definitely think it, it made uh, 
Brownie. Fuck it. Why can't I Brownie. say her fucking name? Bryony. Bryony. Uh, I think it just showed that Bryony, uh, she loved Robbie, right? And then she felt betrayed and she went through all those emotions. And now she's realizing that she fucked up and she did wrong. And she's now realizing what she cost her sister and Robbie. Um, so I think there was some of that in there and the way this guy was talking to her and the way she answered him, you know, she was trying to a make him happy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but I think it got to her mm -hmm. for sure. Um, I don't know if that's symbolism or if that's the way the uh, dude who wrote it uh, intended it. I don't know if this uh, part is even in the book. So, you know, you could, you know, who knows? Interesting thing. Uh, when I was watching this with, with my wife last night, my wife asked the question of why is the sister nurse being so mean and not letting them use their first names? And it clicked with me right away. The reason for that. Do you know why she was doing that? So the patients don't get attached. It's, I think it's so the nurses don't get attached. You exactly. Cannot, you cannot mm. do a job like that and get attached to your patients because most of them are going to die. Yeah. And if you do that, if you keep getting attached to each patient, especially if you give them your first name and you get on a first name basis with them, that kind of job is going to break you. So I don't think the sister nurse was being mean. She was trying to protect the other nurses not to get close to the patients. Which makes sense. I mean, it's World War II, mm -hmm. you know. So it is also mentioned that um, Bryony becomes a nurse because she wants to, uh, she's hoping that it is some sort of penance for what she has already done right. in life earlier. And atonement, yeah, so you are trying to make amends. You, you you are trying to come to the realization, or uh, you know, for your offense or, or or whatever crime it is that you've committed. And this is Bryony's journey throughout pretty much the rest of her life. Is sure. how does she atone for the atrocity that she has created? Right. I really appreciated her discussion with that other nurse when the other nurse says, "Have you ever been in love?" Mm -hmm. And she goes, "No." But then she thinks back and she says, well, I was in love once with a boy, with an older boy, but it, you know, I screwed that all up. And since then, she has denied herself love ever since then. Yeah. And I also like the fact that, or, or the part where the <clears throat> same conversation, the gal's like, uh, do you have any stories? Or she says something like, I used to write plays or what are you working on now? And, and it's the story that we're being told at that moment is what she was working on mm -hmm. and so i i knew that was going to come back and when it came back at the end i'm like oh that's great mm -hmm. you know so, so right. she was she was yeah it just yeah. took half her life to write to to apologize right mm -hmm. yeah and she wrote uh 19 novels in between i thought it was 20 they I said this was this 21st. was her 20 no oh. 21st well so she had written written 20 in between starting this one and finishing yeah the book so it had been in the, her life's work yeah writing uh did it fuck you guys up when they switched actresses no because the haircut it fucked me up because at first i'm thinking that's got to be the same character but she looks nothing like uh Saoirse ronan and so they kept karen knightley the same they even kept lola the same i i understand why they didn't keep uh Saoirse, but i don't know it, it just kind of fucked me up for a moment and right. i and i had to look for that mole on her cheek to and then i went oh now I know who it is. I could be wrong, and you can edit this out if I am, so that way I don't look dumb. But I believe in the casting of it, there was two different Lolas. Three. There was three Lolas? Mm-hmm. Because I know that there was the young Lola. There was another actress that played her at the wedding scene. 
Really? Because it looked just like her. It looked very similar. And I, you're right. I watched the mold too. In fact, I, I almost want to go back and rewatch it because I think in a couple places when they get to the older, uh, older version, the mole might switch sides, but then I thought, oh, well, maybe it's because she's on camera and they're reversing the image. I know the answer to that question, but I want you to go back and rewatch it. You're, you're Just, kind of a bastard. <laughs> At least I'm not a fucking bastard. Bryony writes her sister, wants to meet with her, sister won't meet with her, so she goes over there. And again, this is the way that the filmmakers were doing this. We were cutting between this and we were going back to Dunkirk. Right. Um, what did you guys think of the Dunkirk scenes? We talked. We kind of talked about earlier whether it was epic or not. I I personally feel that these particular scenes made it feel more epic than what it was feeling. I was uh, disturbed watching the the moment that Robbie sees the schoolgirl massacre. All the girls laying on the ground. Yeah, that was rough. Those all shot in the head. What the fuck is that? Well, that was World War II, my friend. Yeah. My first thought when he walked in on that and the tears are coming down his face is, this guy's not coming home the same. This is not going to be the same Robbie is this, that we had before. Is this before or after he opens up his shirt? I think he had opened up his shirt at one point and just looked down and we saw there was just a little wound there. Did, which did, I'm wondering how that he was not that, that, that little, wound. little wound. It just was a. It was you know it looked like he had something, but he wasn't shot there because he yeah. had been dead. No. So something must have stabbed him, like a knife wound or something. Either way, it was fatal, and I knew he wasn't coming home then. So when we jumped to the her him at the apartment. Again, it fucked me up, and I kind of dug it. But yeah, getting back to Dunkirk, I felt like they shot it really well in that scene with the fucking horses. Why are we killing the horses? They shoot horses, don't they? Oh, I know exactly why they're killing the horses. Why? Because, first of all, you know the story behind Dunkirk in World War II. Uh, kind of. Basically, what was happening at that time is, you know, the British Army had come in to help Fran- you know, France and, and the other countries there, and they were basically just being dominated by the Germans. So they had to retreat for a time being. And so they basically, uh, the British Army was trying to get about 400,000 people of their soldiers out of France. So they had all gone to the beach of Dunkirk and kind of set up that they, that was the evacuation point. But there wasn't, they were trying to get them out fast enough and there wasn't enough time to take any of the wounded that couldn't walk. They were abandoned. The horses were also secondary. They couldn't take them because they needed that room for the people. So they were killing all the horses. That was actually a common thing during war back then. Ah, is good. When, when soldiers came home, they killed the horses that were left behind because they didn't want the German army to get them. And they just didn't want to you know, have to bring them home. What kind of asshole would, would care if the Germans got the horses? You think so? You think you'd free them. Right. No. You just slap them on the ass and say, get the fuck out of here. But they didn't want to leave anything behind for the Germans. Oh, our history is there just was something, fucked. From what I read, they did get, because the Germans decided to use that time when the British were trying to evacuate, they tried to use about two weeks to fix their tanks. It was panzer attacks that were causing the British Army to lose. And so they were trying to fix their tanks at that time, which allowed the British Army to fortify enough to get their soldiers out. But they left behind about 40,000 soldiers, most of them who either wanted to stay or the wounded. None of those people made it out. Yeah, well. I thought that they were shooting the horses because they didn't want the horses to be used as food for German soldiers. Mm. So, do you, do you know how long that camera shot was? 
How long? Five minutes. Oh, really? Incredible, incredible camera work. Yeah. It was beautiful. I couldn't believe the amount of extras they used in that scene. In fact, they actually hired local townspeople to be in the movie at, I think, 50 pounds each is what they paid them. Interesting. It, It took them a long time to set it up. They gave themselves two days to shoot it. The first day, they didn't like the weather. The second day, they went through it five times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here we are at in, the, in the story, and we're cutting back and forth, back and forth. Um, and then, like I said, we we jump forward in time, or I'm assuming that we had jumped forward in time, and uh, we see James McAvoy at the apartment with Kira Knightley when Brainy comes to visit, and I'm thinking when the dude went to the bathroom, I'm thinking, was that James McAvoy or is she seeing him some, as James McAvoy, but it's some dude, right? Because she's got, that's what I was wondering too. Yeah. My, my first thought was, you know, when they didn't show his face was, wow, she gave up on Robbie. Yeah. And that's kind of what I thought too. Right. And then when he comes out and they start talking, it took me a second to figure out, okay, this is Robbie and I don't get it. I don't understand how we got here, but I'm assuming they're going to tell us. I kind of liked how he basically said that he was trying to think of what he wanted to do at that moment, break her neck or throw her down the stairs. Oh, sure. And can you blame the guy? No, not at all. And she was just taking it because she knew she deserved it. Yeah. Well, she fucking ruined both of their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, that's gotta be a lot on somebody's shoulders. That's gotta suck. And I don't, I don't put that on anybody. A lot of guilt. Decades later, Bryony is an elderly and successful novelist giving an interview about her latest and last book, an autobiographical novel titled Atonement, as she is dying from vascular dementia. She confesses that the scene in the book describing her visit and apology to Cecilia and Robbie were entirely imaginary. Cecilia and Robbie were never reunited. Ravi died of septicemia at Dunkirk on the morning of the day he was to be evacuated. Cecilia died months later in the Balham tube station bombing during the Blitz. Bryony hopes to give the two in fiction the happiness that she robbed them of in real life. The last scene shows an imagined happily reunited Cecilia and Robbie staying in the house by the sea which they had intended to visit once they were reunited. End movie. Do you see this coming? Do you see the ending coming? I was uh, not surprised that Robbie doesn't make it out. It was sad, but that's what I was expecting because it's not going to be a happy ending. And I was curious to see what was going to happen to Cecilia. And in a tragic sort of way, I, I think that it is better that she dies as well as Robbie dying. So that way, neither one of them will live in torture, if you will, of not having each other. Like Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, kind of like a Romeo and Juliet story. Yeah. Um, I thought that when we were in the apartment, like I was saying, it was fucking me up. When they showed James McAvoy, they did a medium shot on him. And I'm thinking, where the fuck is the scar? Where is that bullet? Because it wasn't a little fucking hole. There was something either stuck in there, or whatever. It was I big. I too. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking, where the fuck is that? And then when we cut to uh, Vanessa Rutgrave and there's a fucking TV monitor, I'm like, 
Oh, she is the one telling the story. We cut to Vanessa Redgrave. We are uh, in present day or whatever. And I thought, oh, she is the narrator. And then I started thinking back to all of the typing that we heard throughout the fucking movie. And I'm like, oh, she's writing the novel. And then when she gets to the fact that Robbie dies, which I assumed he wasn't looking too good. He was hallucinating and being, mm-hmm. and, and God bless his mate for trying to protect him and, and, you know, get him home. But you know, yeah. he didn't make it. What did surprise me and actually really kind of bothered me was that she, uh, that Kira Knightley died. Um, I just thought that, you know, they, the, the scene where she's laying there, they're all laying there in the subway. And I keep thinking to myself, doesn't her family have money? And then, yeah, she was estranged, blah, blah, blah. But then you see that water coming down and it's just imminent death. And then we cut to her floating in the fucking sewer. It, it was, it was a rough one for me. And I and I did not see it coming. But you know, something that professor brought up earlier about the purifying effects of water it is interesting how water is used in this movie in that, you know, that they're so scared as the water's coming in, but then you notice it's that calm piece. Of course, they're dead, but just that calm piece of her floating in that water. She's back in the water again. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. So maybe that was, you know, her piece. Yeah. And so the interviewer is asking her, you know, um, why is this your last book? And she says that I'm dying and that this is, this is the piece that she was hoping to give uh, Cecilia and Robbie uh, in fiction that she couldn't give them in uh, real life. And then that ending scene, I knew that house was going to come back to us. Right. And it really kind of reminded me of a scene in what dreams may come. Have you guys ever seen that with Robin Williams ages ago? I just watched it a week ago. Did you really? Yes. I had a craving to watch that one and pulled it out and watched it. Oh, had you seen it before? I have seen it a few times. In fact, it's one of my favorite Robin Williams movies, right? Holy shit, did me and the comic book guy just agree on something? Yeah, we, we might have to review that one of the, one of these days. Oh, I cannot get Because the way that style, that made me review what I thought heaven would be like and kind of hope that, you know, I find my Robin Williams heaven. Yeah, well, I cannot get, oh, so good. I cannot get through that movie without crying. The scene where he looks at Cuba Gooding Jr. and he figures out who he is. Yeah, But what movie are we talking about? Fuck, let's talk about what dreams might come, dude. I, know. I fucking love that That's movie. A brilliant one. Anyways, moving on. Um, anyway, I, it, that last shot reminded me of something from there and even Inception, really. But, you know, their happy ending, what could have been. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and that's how the movie ends. And it was an interesting take to get that at the very end of the movie that, um, you know, that the music in Atonement is essentially Bryony's music. It is her telling of the story. We get this, it starts at the beginning of Act 2 because now it is only based on the first-hand accounts that she is able to get through people that were actually there. I'm guessing that she probably ended up getting those stacks, the stacks of letters, you know, with the with the postcard picture of the house on the beach, right? So she had that to go with. And so, uh, you know, retrospectively, everything after that first act you know, that is the story. It's constructed from the firsthand accounts during the whole London and France. Oh, my gosh. That is okay. Which means that the whole apartment scene where she talks to them, that never happened. Oh. 
Yeah. I, I, I thought of it when it all kind of twisted, I guess. I thought of an M. Night Shyamalan twist ending, mm. and I did not see that coming for a period piece. So I, well done to the filmmakers, I, I, I say. I've said it frequently throughout our podcast that I like a movie where I didn't see it coming. And so I did appreciate that swerve that, oh, here they out there happy. And then I kept thinking, well, that just tied everything up kind of neatly. Now she's going to go and testify, but he's still going to have it hanging over him. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, it didn't really happen. Yeah. Just when you think the movie is going to go one way, it goes the other. And that, you know, that's a good sign of a good movie. I did think it was interesting that it turns out, you know, atonement is based off of a novel. Right. But in the movie, the movie is basically her telling us of the novel she wrote. So it's a movie based off of a novel, based off of a novel. The author, in an interview, uh, Ian has revealed that Atonement itself, the book, is based off of another novel. So the whole movie is a novel based off of a novel, based off of another novel. He based the movie partly on Henry James' What Matisse knew. That's the name of the novel he based Atonement on. Interesting. Do you, you remember that scene in Billy Madison when they're doing the questions and then the host looks at, uh, or Billy Madison gives an answer and then the host says, wow, I and everyone in this room now feel dumber for having to listen to that. So You're thank welcome. You, thank you, John. <laughs> now... I do want to ask a question of both of you. No, dude, you ask way too many questions. And this is another one of my little theories. Uh, lately, I've been trying to look, especially at movies like this. Uh, we have a friend who brings up the fact that maybe we missed metaphors and missed symbolism in certain movies. And so I was trying to look for metaphors and symbolism in this movie. And one of the things that I personally got was maybe a lot of this was a metaphor for war itself in that a lot of times there's propaganda used in war and there's a lot of lies told to get people to fight, to support their cause. Uh, Robbie and his guys are even talking at one time to those French people saying that, you know, they're being evacuated out, but yet it's being portrayed as a good thing that they're leaving. Um, so I almost felt like this whole movie was the based off of the idea of war, of the lies that people tell that end up, coming back to haunt them in the end, that it's not really what happened and it kind of screws people over in the end. Maybe. I suppose you could look at it like that. I looked at this uh, as a love story first and foremost. Um, and I think that, you know, that was that was conveyed really well. So, but if you, if you can look into that and get some symbolism, symbolism out of it, well then, more power to you. I have a question that I forgot to ask a little bit earlier. My question is, how the hell do you confuse and put the wrong letter into the envelope? Oh, well, that is a great question, Professor. I asked myself that same question last night. First of all, kind of a cheeky letter, right? I mean, I did not see that coming either. So I wasn't really sure what rated this was. And then when that came out and then the library scene, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's rated R, right? I can answer that question, but go on, Don. Um, well, please, by all means. How many of us here have ever sent a text message to the wrong person. I'm going to have to say it's just you, buddy. One is in a typewriter. The other is sitting on the desk. 
You pull it out of the typewriter and then put it into the envelope. Well, I got the impression what the fuck? that he had typed out a bunch of messages and he thought, you know, he'd handwritten the final one. Well, he kept throwing the messages that he uh, was uh, typing out. He kept throwing them away. There were kept scenes of him doing that over and over again. And then he finally gives them and writes this cheeky message to her. And I thought he wrote the handwritten message on the folded part of the actual a letter that he just typed out right i didn't realize it was two pieces of paper and then when i did realize it and he takes off i'm thinking to myself like you professor how the fuck do you not know well when he pulled out the letter you know the, the cheeky one and folded it and didn't throw it away like he, the others i knew there was going to be a screw up here all oh, right yeah they're foreshadowing that right yeah. they're setting it up but that moment where he does find out it is pretty funny when he realizes yeah when he's walking towards the estate and he has the envelope in his hand my wife said i'll bet you he put the wrong letter in the envelope yeah and sure shit he's he did and then as soon as we see bryony and she goes yep it's like really oh yeah even though yeah. the letter was graphic and it was kind of nasty i dug that cecilia liked the letter cecilia cecilia because you know that told you right there she was into robbie well, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> not that I advise yeah, I, any of our listeners to send out a letter like that because, oh, dude, it's twenty one. It's twenty twenty one. You're gonna Come end on. up in a you know a lawsuit. Basically, it's not that bad. It's not anything that you haven't seen. Uh, remember from Dust Till Dawn? Yes. Remember what? Uh, what's her name? Julia Juliet Lewis. You remember, you remember what she asks Quentin Tarantino? I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen that. Yeah, movie. go back and look that up, and then you'll you'll know okay. what I'm talking about. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. How the fuck does he fuck that up, dumbass? You know, I I do have another answer for that. Oh, please, it's the I'm dawn all ears. It's the dawn answer. Oh, brother, it was, it was written, written that, that way. way, literally. Oh, why don't we start with that? You guys keep getting going. This is why these fucking things take so long. Yeah, so well, the movie was two and a half hours, so why don't we do make this podcast two and a half hours? Like I, I hey, I admit it, it, it was a, it felt a bit long. It was long. I didn't fucking make it. It dragged in parts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, name a movie that doesn't. Flash Gordon, Evil Dead, Moulin Rouge. Fuck, dude. Uh, the professor asked us a couple of weeks ago what we were on, and you know, a half dose it. I think yeah, is what you said. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you're on. Cut the dose. Yeah, you, good sir, whatever you're on, fuck whatever, dude. All right, so what do you guys think? Should we rate this bitch? Let's rate this. All right. Bob's your uncle. Uh, Atonement. I really enjoyed the film as a whole. Uh, I thought it dragged a little bit in uh, places here and there. Like I said earlier, you could probably cut 20, 25 minutes out of it, and it would still be just fine. Uh, I appreciated James McAvoy, Kieran Knightley, who, you know, other than the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean films, you know, she, she kind of plays the same character in most films, but I thought she uh, was really good in this. And, you know, the supporting cast around it was good. The story moved as well as it could be moved. But what I appreciated most about this movie was the way that they... Uh, cut it together the way they told the story uh, in a non-linear type of way and then for us to find out at the very end that it was uh, Bryony's uh, story all along 
and she told it to us as a narrator, uh, but they did it in a, in a really cool way. I felt that this movie was very much a period piece, and it hit three of the four uh, categories in our definition, or in the definition we have, at least in my opinion it does. Um, you know, it was the first time that I saw it, and I'm glad that I saw it. Uh, would I watch it again? Sure. Uh, would Do I need to watch it again right now? probably not it would probably be <laughs> a minute or two before i check this film out again so because of that i am going to give this movie a 3.25 a little okay. bit a little bit more than average and you know mm-hmm. i'll go next okay professor so for me i uh was unsure what to expect out of this movie i knew that it was going to be a somber story and it is a drama. I don't recall necessarily laughing ever in the movie out of, you know, it being a funny moment. It is every bit a drama. And certainly, as I expected at the beginning, it's not going to have a happy ending. How do I feel about not having a happy ending? That's okay, because if the story is told well, then that makes it all the worthwhile for the journey to take place. Just because it doesn't have a happy ending doesn't make it a poor story. Just tell me a story in a in, you know in an interesting and creative way, which they definitely do. And the reveal at the end, at the epilogue, where we have Bryony's story and realizing that it is her from the second act on, I thought that that was very creative, and I appreciated that a lot. And I, I thought that it was interesting how it speaks to her truth. It, 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 it speaks to her sorrow for what it was that she had done. And she just wanted to be able to try to rebuild, if you will, some sort of a life of happiness for these characters for what she had destroyed. And I think that in the end, she felt like that these two people, Robbie and uh, Cecilia, deserved this happiness, even though it's a work of fiction. I also appreciated uh, the character of Robbie a great deal. In, in, in the conclusion of the first act, you know, in, in a little bit of a way, Robbie, he's a little bit like a, 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 a Christ figure. He is somebody that is only trying to do good. He is empathetic, and ultimately he ends up being crucified by those around him that um, – Pretty much everybody, except for Cecilia, turns on him, and, and she is the, the 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 one beacon in his life that you know gives him some sort of sense of hope. The depth of these characters is very rich. Sersha, I thought that she was amazing in this movie, and you know, for her being so young and, and to carry the movie the way that she did, and and the fact that this is Bryony's story, amazing. Uh, the cinematography, the whole Dunkirk shot, I, I, I really appreciated a lot of this movie, but it is a, a weighty movie. It is heavy. I'm not eager to watch it right off the bat, but it is a, a job very well done. And uh, I, I thought that uh, Kira Knightley, she was delightful to watch in this. And the chemistry between the two, I appreciated how they conveyed their emotions to each other. It was reserved, but it was also, you know, I could feel the passion between them. So in the end, the the music, I, I really appreciated the music a lot. 
And I think that it is probably worth, even though it is so good the way that it is, I'm not eager to jump right back in and watch it again. And so I, I've been going back and forth, and, and I, I think I'm going to stick with the middle between where I was at, 3.25. There you go. So I guess that would make it my turn. I guess, if you want to go. Okay. Well, there is no doubt that Atonement is a, Atonement is a well-made movie. It is a, has amazing acting, costumes, a well-written story, all of it. And for fans of Downton Abbey or Pride and Prejudice or Little Women, I have no doubt that they, they would enjoy this movie. Like I said earlier, I would highly recommend it to them. But for me, I found the movie a bit slow, and I really didn't enjoy all those jumps, like I said earlier, to retell the story from another point of view. I didn't find those alternate viewpoints revealing at all, because I figured early on, this is a 13-year-old girl, she's just misinterpreting everything. I kind of wish, you know, we disagree, especially from a filmmaking point of view, that they had either grouped a lot of those together or they just had a retelling later on, maybe when you know, she started to click and started to remember things, that maybe she goes to her sister and her sister retells her everything. Um, I did, you know, they could have saved a lot of those slow time by getting rid of some of these retellings. The ending, while it's unexpected, also felt meaningless to me. She gave the couple an ending that she felt they should have had, but in reality, they both died unfulfilled. Basically, let's say I wrote a book, and in my book, Don, you win the lottery, and you win millions of dollars. Is that going to make your life any better? Am I dead or alive when you wrote it? Exactly. Let's say you are dead, and I've written this book that says, Don wins a million dollars. That does nothing for you. It doesn't help your life. It doesn't help your family. It doesn't solve anything All it's going to do is maybe make me feel better about myself because I've fictionally given you a million dollars. So really, I almost saw that as being selfish. I felt like she was a selfish little girl who grew up to be a selfish older woman. She wrote the chapter to make herself feel better because she lacked the courage to do what she should have done in real life. So that's kind of how I saw the ending of this movie, and it kind of made me a little bitter So the movie for me felt unresolved. If that's what the writer was going for, then they were very successful. And some folks are okay with that. Me, I'm not a fan, but that's just my personal opinion. For me, this movie is definitely not rewatchable. And if I could actually jump back in time, like they did so many times in this movies, I'd have to question if I even would watch this movie in the first place because the ending, like I said, really bummed me out. Um, You know, the whole idea of this woman getting her selfish ending. So regarding my rating, I'm actually going to give it some bonus points or a bonus point for the fact that it was brilliantly made for the type of audience it was directly made for. And it's a great pick for those people who would like this type of movie. But for me, it was not a great watch. And for that reason, I'm going to give it a 1.5. 1.5. And the one point is the bonus point. Okay. There you go. Okay. Any of that uh, you, you want you, to address? You you are just a fucking fuddy-duddy. Yeah, she was selfish, but you know what she was doing? She was forgiving herself. This is called atonement. 
Yeah, she is atoning, but when you atone and you make something right, you make it right for whoever you wrong. Not, we, not it, just just for yourself. Not well, she can't. They're dead. So exactly. she ha- so she has to forgive herself. But that's You my, don't believe in that. But that's my point is that these are things she should have atoned for she, before they die. Should have would have could should have would have could have. She didn't. Yeah. Great. Does that make her a bad person or does that make her human? I feel like she can't atone for it now because they're dead. And who made you God? Nobody made me God. <laughs> but I'm just saying, in my opinion, when you atone for something, is it just for yourself? It, it is de- that the only reason you're atoning? It depends on the situation, and you know that. You don't think God would want her to have made it right with them? But she didn't. So she no, has, she didn't. That's right. So she has to find a way now because she's older and regretful. I'm not saying she led a great life or she, you know, was all this that, and the other. The point, the point of this book was for her to forgive herself. And so you think in the end she was successful in her atonement? Only she can answer that. Would Robbie and Cecilia have said she was? Doesn't matter. They're dead. Exactly. I thought that she was giving all that she was able to give and she didn't have any other way to do it. Her life is running out, and with her life running out, this is all that she has to give. But you realize, too, she's at the end of her life, and this is when the truth is finally coming out. So she's basically saying that she never revealed the truth all those years ago. She, even after Robbie had died, you know, in the arm, she could have come out then and come clean with everything and revealed this man died you know, falsely accused. But she's saying in, in that interview that now is the time she's finally gotten up the courage to tell the truth. Well, she wanted, she said that she wanted to several times, and that was the reason why she was writing the letter to Cecilia when they were in England, was her trying to get that out, but she just couldn't find the courage to do it. Yeah, and so to me, that's why she doesn't get a pass on that. She could have done it way back then. So... Because she didn't do something in a timely manner, does that make her a bad person? It doesn't make her a bad person, but doesn't mean that she successfully atoned in my book. Okay. I get it. Sure. Should we draw our next movie? Hey, let's draw our next movie. Why don't you, before we draw our movie, why don't you, Don, tell us what special thing we're going to do in October? We are going to do a special four-week compare and contrast to movies that have originals and uh, remakes. And since it is October, I'm going to go ahead and let you, our faithful listener, uh, figure out what type of genre we are talking about. So stay tuned for that, and we, we're we going to have a lot of fun in October. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. More information coming in the next few podcasts. Yeah, there you go. Now is the time in the podcast where we are going to draw our next film we still have our genres left. Ken, how many uh, movies do you have left? Two. Which are? Buddy, period. And Jonathan? I have Western and food movie left. Wait, what was your period piece? My period No, piece? it fucking wasn't. All right, here we go. We'll pick the Blues Brothers. I think that was me. And then you picked Atonement? I picked Atonement. Atonement came after Blues Brothers, right? Yes. Okay, so I guess it's me. That's why we're recording Atonement now. Fuck you, dude. Pick a good one, Don. You're probably going to say that if you pick mine, too. Pick a good one, Don. I'm picking, I'm picking. Don, you only have one left in there, is it? I only have one left. Is it my Western? Your Western, wow. Which I know for a fact you won't like. Yeah. So this is awesome. 
I'm going to, it is going to be my goal from here on out to make you watch movies that you would never watch. Okay. I'm going to punish you. And I'm going to surprise you. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going to punish you and I'm going to make you atone for your fucking sins. And you better do it on my fucking timetable or it doesn't count. As long as I live long enough. That's what I'm saying. Well, you better do it now because you never know. Yeah. All right. So the next film is a Western, probably not the best Western ever made, but absolutely the most racist Western ever made. Blazing Saddles. There you go. Blazing Saddles saddles well at least they got the fucking genre right but that, you know that's a plus it's also kind of a musical but it doesn't Do you see it, a theme here are you coming out to us no but <laughs> look at the movies i picked. dude we're so proud of you does julie know she does not know okay well, i was i was wondering if she was in on it all right jonathan where can they find us they can find us at our website www.3guysinaflick.com they can find us at any popular or unpopular podcast hosting site they can find us at facebook twitter instagram lots of different places and as always they can find us hiding out in don's basement all right so thank you again for listening thanks to our one true listener we truly uh, appreciate your support stay tuned for that uh, october action i think uh it's going to be a lot of fun and it's going to be a first something that we haven't done here uh we haven't actually done a lot of things that we're thinking about doing so uh, stop it <laughs> I, fu- I i see where you're going Dude, with that I, one i fucking knew it he's coming out to us ken why I did knew it why did we never talk about what the racy little comment was in the letter <laughs> because my wife has forbid me from ever saying that word and since you were whipped oh hell uh, yeah i can see i can see that all right ken what did the racy comment say i'm not gonna say you fucking pussy and all I love right. that little sheepish grin he had there yeah. when he said that yeah all right so for three guys in a flick i'm don i'm john and i'm ken thanks for listening You are being a blow a wanker, you fuck.